0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 534th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who grows most anything she wants in her desert garden. We're talking with returning guest, Catherine Crowley, ...about her favorite herbs. Catherine, the herb lady, is an expert in edible landscaping in the desert, is an author and a lecturer. She has been gardening for over three decades, initially focusing on culinary herbs... Then her garden journey expanded to growing anything she ate or drank as a base for experimenting new to her and common edible herbs, vegetables, fruits, and flowers. These days, Catherine blogs and writes on gardening and cooking. With the garden bounty, she harvests from her garden and community. Catherine, we got to meet you in podcasts episodes 130 and 208. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock?
1: I definitely am, Greg. Good to be back.
0: Excellent. Thank you for being back. So it's been a few years since we interviewed you. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you since?
1: I have been trying a couple of different new to me vegetables. I planted some pigeon peas. Unfortunately, the frost seems to have taken off the tops of them, but I'm going to I'm holding out hope. Mhm. I was so happy with the way the etoie onions did in my garden. I've stopped growing pretty much everything, every other uh, onion-type plant except garlic and garlic chives. Uh-huh. I have Before you really go past that,
0: you're, you're talking about the toy onions?
1: Yes. Ah, those,
0: those yes.
1: They are so versatile. Oh I mean, you gosh. can use them as a chive, you can use them as a shallot, as an onion. They have that wonderful onion, garlic, shallot flavor. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's all in one little plant. Yeah. And they expand a lot.
0: Well, and I, my experience with them is I plant one, and they're about the size of a quarter. I plant one in the front yard, and within about three months, I have 24 of them. And then if I split them up, then I, you know, those 24 turn into 244.
1: They are a true exponential plant. You plant one, and you will wind up with 2,000.
0: <laughs> right. And where <laughs> where would somebody listening to this find them?
1: I believe that Suzanne Velotti has sold them through her transplant program, you know, the seedling programs that she has where she sells at uh, several of the farmer's markets. I'm not sure who else right now grows them, but they could be gotten online.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that that's for local. Suzanne Velarde here locally. I'm pretty sure that native seed search, well, I know they used to carry them.
1: They would be a good place to check, certainly. Exactly.
0: Okay, carry on. I cut you off.
1: Uh, No, no, that's okay. I think one of the things that I've been trying to do is focus more because I did so much of that experimentation for the last, oh, dozen years or so, I decided to focus a little bit more on what I use every day. And so I'm growing, I have a little, what I call a greens bed that I sowed heavily with lettuces, cilantro, dill, basil, celery different types of greens. And so if I want salad, for instance, or even just greens to add to soups or stews, I just go out with my scissors and I chop off about uh, four inches of them and I'm good to go.
0: Now, can I assume on that one that you planted them a few years ago and you let them go to seed every year and then they replant themselves?
1: Mostly. They have reseeded now two years in a row, but I add. Like this year, I wanted a little bit more of that wonderful red romaine and I stuck more celery seed in there this year. And that's one of the wonderful things about a lot of these. I just let many of them go to seed in sight right there where they will drop. Or I'll pick up a seed head and I'll wave it all over where I want it to grow. And then I drop, I do a, you know, it's kind of a chop and drop. I will drop some of the litter down on top of it to keep it at of sight from the birds.
0: Nice. I've told this to people for years, and that is that herbs are the most expensive thing to
1: buy. Oh, yes. And the easiest thing to grow. Has that been your experience? Very much so. I mean, when people talk about buying a bunch of fresh uh, basil or oregano or thyme in the supermarket section, what is that, uh, a quarter of an ounce Maybe. and it's two bucks? Yeah, that's a seed packet purchase, and you can use the, you can have that seed packet if you carefully store it for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years.
0: When it, and what you do is you let them go to seed and then drop the seed, so literally they can come back for decades.
1: And also, um, as you're familiar with, it, it creates that regional adaptation, which. which makes them happier in our desert garden. Many people don't know that you can grow celery here. They think, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, they come back every year if you have found a place that they are happy to be, and you let them go to seed in sight, they come up.
0: And it's that easy?
1: It is that easy.
0: So you've grown and sold many items at the local farmers markets over the years. What were the most popular ones?
1: Some of the cut herbs, of course, basil. One of the real popular ones for a while was actually roselle, the homica, which is a hibiscus plant that produces the what is harvested is sometimes called the fruit. It's the uh, swollen calyx of the flower, a wonderful lemonade cranberry flavor that's hugely popular in the Caribbean and South America and is so good for you because it's filled with vitamin C. Various herbs, fruits, I grow lime quat. And so people were intrigued with something that looks like a a miniature lime and is used like a lime.
0: Right. Well, but with the quats, so interesting about the kumquats, mandarin quats, lemon quats, lime quats. They look citrus-like, but they're actually a different family than citrus. And you eat both the skin and the inside. Tell us about that.
1: Well, and, and a lot of people don't know you can, well, obviously you can eat like lemon peel, orange peel, but the whole fruit of the lime is used. Now, some chefs don't bother using the interior. They'll just simply use the peel when they're cooking or flavoring something. I like to use the whole fruit. Um, in fact, I recently preserved the lime as you would preserve a lemon, and it's just super fun to use in Mediterranean-type dishes.
0: This is a new one for me, just like Roselle. We're going to come back to Roselle here in a minute because I'd never heard about that. But how do you preserve the lime quads?
1: Okay, so you need kosher salt, and you get a good, clean, sterilized jar, and you almost split them in quarters. You don't quite go through the base. Sometimes that's hard to do with something so small you may cut all the way through. That's okay. So, you're going to start with a little bit of kosher salt in the bottom of a jar. And put a slice, one of the lime quats, and stick it in the jar, open end up, and sprinkle some salt in it. And do that until you have packed, and I mean packed, the jar with the lime quat, alter, alternating, adding salt, kosher salt, and until you've got it all the way up to the top. And then you really push it down so that you're releasing the juices. If you don't have quite enough juice to keep it completely covered, then you want to squeeze some extra and put it in there. And then it, it's a fermentation process. So you, most people pr- prefer to let the fermentation go on inside the refrigerator because you do want to be careful about mold. Mm-hmm. But if you have done fermentation before... You can put it on the counter with a glass weight and just lightly cover it with something so that the gases escape. If you're refrigerating it to ferment, you want to open the jar periodically and let any gas that's expanded be released. And they're ready to use in about two weeks, and then they store forever.
0: So... You're adding a lot of salt in there, so it would seem like they would be very salty.
1: It is. And you have a choice. Uh, depending on what kind of dish you're using it in, you may want all of that salt, or you can just lightly rinse it and then and then use it. Most of the time, you're slivering the whole thing, the peel, the fruit, and using it or, or dicing it, mincing it, and adding it into the dish.
0: Wow. How does it change the taste of them?
1: It doesn't really. You've got that really nice Sparkly flavor of lime. I think of lime has has a little bit of an extra sparkle to it over lemon, and but it all comes through. It's just mellower.
0: Wow, cool! And you you mentioned the what you called Roselle earlier,
1: right? It, the plant is called um, Hibiscus sabdifra, and it is known very well in the Caribbean and South America. Uh, the flower lasts one day. It's a beautiful, hibiscus-looking flower. Mm-hmm. And you will see on the back that the calyx, which is that usually that green cup that holds the base of the flower, in this case is a burgundy color. When the flower falls out, that cup starts to split into petals. And the older it gets, the more those petals swell so it will go from, oh, probably being about a half an inch wide, three quarters of an inch wide. And when it finishes fully opening up and splitting, it may be an inch and a half, almost two inches in diameter around it. And the pieces that you use are those swollen cranberry colored petals. If you want to save seed, and again, get getting back to, Save the seed and re-sow it. You let it go completely dry, and in the center, there's a, a funny-looking little dome, like a tan dome, and you can still see the original seam of where the stamen started out. Mm-hmm. And it will split and open up and give you the seeds. Are pretty big. They're about uh, oh quarter of an inch. Wow. Um, they love. They, they're one of the summer's blessings. They love the heat.
0: Wow, and this is the same one that you can make hibiscus tea out of.
1: Yes, if you've ever had red hibiscus or hibiscus in a tea blend that you've bought or been served, that's it. And there is only one roselle, uh, there's only one hibiscus that does this. All hibiscus flowers are edible, but the the only one that creates this beautiful calyx is the febdifra.
0: And what do you do with them?
1: I have, in fact, I have some still frozen in my freezer. I have made, think fruit like a tart fruit, like uh, cherries or cranberries. I have made a fruit and nut bread with the petals. You can dry them and use them to make tea. I have served them fresh in salads. They're kind of a, a fun thing to add to other types of dishes where you might add a fruit. Mm -hmm. I've made jam, and it's delicious. Oh,
0: I'll bet. Let's talk about your garden in general, and what, what is the most unique or surprising success you've had?
1: I would have to say that it is how much I've been able to grow in the hot sun. People, when I first started gardening, I had to learn like everybody else what would grow and when. And one of the things that I discovered was everybody is terrified of our hot summers. Mm -hmm. And I found that if you think in terms of soil coverage or canopy, uh, density of planting or adding mulch, I did, and I may have mentioned this in prior podcasts, one year I wanted to plant basil and it was June. And I was really late. I didn't get around to doing it. So I got like five or six basil plants uh, because I wanted uh, a jump start on it. And I planted them in a tight circle about 12 inches in diameter. And, of course, the heat jumped. And one by one, I watched all of the exterior basils die off. Meanwhile, the center ones, there were two that survived, all had the benefit of the sun. But they had the canopy over the soil and the side of the base of the plant so that by the time the outer plants had died off, the center ones were robust and they thrived.
0: Interesting how that works, isn't it?
1: It is. And I, I call it flower mulching. You can do the same thing if you're, if you're up against a time frame and you want to get something in and it's hot. I, I suggest getting a, a pack of edible flowers and doing that 12-inch diameter. You put your target plant in the middle and surround it with the flowers. And if you don't do that, then add 2 to 3 inches of mulch around the base, not, uh, not touching it, of course, The bugs like that too, but you've got that canopy of the soil that will keep it cool while the plant is stabilizing.
0: One of the things that I discovered just interestingly enough just back in 2017 was the difference that that ground cover can make. I was standing out in my front yard in August and for those of you that aren't in the low desert here, it's really dang hot. It can get up to 120 degrees and I had one of those temperature pointer things that you point at the ground, and it was 140 degrees at ground level, Uh and it was 120 degrees six inches down. That's enough to kill pretty much anything, trees included, And six feet to the east of where I was standing, still in full sun, I had sweet potatoes growing. And underneath the sweet potatoes, it was 89 degrees.
1: Exactly. And that is the whole point about canopying the soil. Everybody gets worked up about the air temperature, which you mentioned. And yes, it's dang hot. But if you cool the surface of the soil and you can help the plants root a cool with mulch or canopy like the sweet potato vines, that's a perfect example of how that canopies and cool everything, then you can grow many of the things that otherwise really do want the full sun and the heat. They just don't like hot feet.
0: Right. Well, <laughs> you know, I get people asking me this question a lot and that is, you know, can I plant, because we sell fruit trees, can I plant this in full sun? And my answer is, well, it depends what full sun is because, it, you know, if it's a really hot microclimate with concrete and gravel, that's different than my backyard with no block walls or, you know, in grass.
1: That's Then that's a really good point. Because you almost have to ask the second and the third question mm-hmm. about where is it that you're imagining planting it, and I'm sure you've been asked this or you've seen people who have said, "Well, I, I got this plant. They said it would take sun, and they send a picture, and it's a 12 inch pot in the middle of a bare yard." Right. And it, it's the and for for people who don't quite understand what that what's happening is not only is the soil surface around it heating up, but so is the sides of the pot. So you have that 140 plus temperature possibility all on those roots.
0: And it does a number on them.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it's a good way to learn how they make terracotta bricks.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Hmm. It, and growing things in the desert in pots is, is challenging. And I tell people, if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that you shade the pot 100% of the time. And, and, go, and- go ahead.
1: Well, and choose a a large pot. I recommend people go with at least a two-foot diameter pot and then plant in six inches from the side for the same reason. The soil, the exterior soil acts as an insulator.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. So when you're trying new-to-you plants in your garden, what prompts you to try growing a
1: new herb, and and what strategy do you use to get them to grow? Uh, One of the things that I have, I've I've developed, I, I, I should probably call it an instinct, maybe. After doing this for almost, you know, four decades, when I initially started out, I said, okay, I really like X. I want to see where I can grow it. And so I would buy three plants and I would put them in different locations in my yard. I have a typical but larger residential lot and we started out with trees and then I started filling in. I would plant them in two or three different locations and see where they did well. And I would observe the sun orientation and that's an important factor I like to tell tell people about and I'll get back to that in a second. So I would determine where that plant did well. Over the years, as I came across something new to me that sounded really good and I really wanted to try, particularly if I've eaten it, I wanted to try and grow it, I would think about what it was similar to. Was this more like an herb? Was it more like mint? which can take a little bit of shade. Was it more like rosemary, which says, bring it on? And I would then try, maybe not as many plants, I would try the plant in one or two sections and see where it did well, and then go from there. And so I kind of have... I don't know if it's an instinct or just experience. This does well here. This won't do as well, but maybe I'll grow it there because I want some anyway, that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you do a lot of experimenting. And I like I that. Do. I liked what you said. You buy three plants and you plant them in three different places. I've never tried that before. It makes perfect sense.
1: Well, and if you're, yeah, because you want to know what it wants. They do kind of tell you that what is working for them. They're, and, and, you know, assuming that you started out with with some healthy plants and you plant them correctly I mentioned that in, in terms of things like uh, strawberries where you you don't want to bury the crown with a tomato plant you can stick the whole thing up to the top two leaves in the ground and it'll root all the way along mm-hmm. but the um, yeah the idea is to learn what that plant wants and give it to it and I'd like to get back to sun orientation yes. uh, if we if you if we can please when one of the failures that I've had is not a appreciating the sun orientation as the sun moves through the year. We planted, we started out with an, a basic orchard, apple trees, peach trees, orange trees. And we made a mistake when we set up two sets of the trees. We planted them north to south instead of east to west. And what that did was it killed one of the apple trees because they never got enough sun. Mm-hmm. And the one of the peach trees also never got enough sun. It was blocked between two other trees. So, And you would think that I would learn my lesson, but I did it again to myself with my root crop plantings this fall. Uh I I desperately wanted to get them in really fast, so I have a large cinder block bed. And I I was very pleased with myself. I got, over a three-week period of time, I got two sets of rows of the root crops in and realized I put them in north to south, instead of east to west. So I have really beautiful beet greens, but no beets because of the way the sun. sun behaved on the way I had set up the orientation of the plants.
0: So tell me a little bit more about what that means, north to south or east to west, to kind of give a picture to our listeners about what you're doing and why.
1: Okay, so when the sun moves through the sky... When you're a gardener, you're usually aware of it, and particularly if you're a homeowner, because you've got things that will tell you where the sun is. So in the summertime, the sun is mostly to the north, and then as it moves from the June 21st to December 21st, it starts to move more south, and that creates a lot of Sun on the north side of a house, for instance, in the summertime, but no sun in the wintertime. Conversely, because of the way the this, this sun orients, you have a southern exposure, which a lot of people would say, oh, no, 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 you can't grow in a southern exposure. It's going to be too hot. Well, it ge- gives you the benefit of sun all day long, year-round in a southern exposure, except you get western afternoon shade if you're using your house as the guide. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for east. East, you will get sun all morning long until about noon or so year-round, unless you have something to the east, which is a beneficial place to do a lot of gardening in the desert because, again, you will be insured of enough sun for most of the plants that you would want to grow Uh, Through the different times of the year,
0: I call that an eastern exposure, and I've I've distinguished two really simple ways to get the concept across to people. An eastern exposure gets sun from sun up until noon, and if you walk and with your back against a wall and you're looking east when you're with your back against the wall, that's an eastern exposure. If you're looking west, that's a western exposure, and it. Right. It took me quite a little while to actually be able to distinguish that, to share it with people so they could get it, you know?
1: Right, and that, that is a really good point, Greg, because people will, will, they'll look out their their backyard and they'll say, well, it's it's north. And I will say to them, they say, well, I, I have to plant in my backyard. And I say, well, how deep is your backyard? And they say, oh, well, it's 35 feet. I said, bingo, the wall On the back part of your property is a southern exposure.
0: Right. It's on the north side of the property. Right. But if you stand with your back against the wall, you're looking south.
1: Right. And I will tell them, if you keep your plantings halfway from the middle of the yard to the block fence, usually it's a block fence, I said, you have the perfect planting location for your garden.
0: Yeah. And now let's go back to planting east and west or north and south. Can you say what that means so that people can get the picture of it?
1: Okay. So back to where the sun moves from the north in the summer to the south in the winter. Mm -hmm. If you had a point... I'll use my one of my beds as an example. We have a an asparagus bed that east is east to west on the north side of the property uh-huh. in front of the asparagus bed is strawberries. so what that means is that bed gets it does get sun all year long, and the benefit is Asparagus is on the north side of the strawberries. Mm -hmm. That means that it shades the strawberries a little bit, but the the strawberries can still get all the sun they need.
0: Well, you wouldn't want to put the strawberries behind the asparagus because the the, the asparagus gets gets to three feet tall, and they would never get enough sun.
1: Right. And so when I when I the point of this is when the east to west ensures that everything gets sun all year long. But if you have tall plants and you have short plants, and you want to put the tall plants on the north or the west side so they don't shade the smaller plants.
0: Yeah, perfect. And then uh, back to your fruit trees, basically you want to, what you're saying is you want to plant them so that they start on the east side of your property and they move west so that they're all getting the same amount of sun. Exactly. Rather than starting on the south side of your yard and planting them north, where some of them some of them are not going to get enough sun.
1: They're deep, exactly. Perfect. And and it, and in, and it's an unfortunate occurrence. And like I said, I, I you would know, you would think that I would know, but I was excited to in the season right. as early as possible, and I didn't pay attention. The if you have an extremely large property, if you have an acre or so. You know, you can do multiple lines east to west of the fruit trees, but you'll probably want them, depending on what kind of density you want, you probably want them about 25 feet apart as a row, so it ensures that everything gets enough sun. I know you know, Greg, that there are some people who do very intensive tree orchards where they're literally seven or eight feet apart, but the people who want to do that are prepared to do the tremendous amount of regular pruning that's required to keep those trees all exposed enough to get what they need.
0: Yeah, and I've even seen, when I was in Europe both times, I even saw them planting peaches and pears and apples four feet apart in hedgerows, and they were always planted the you know from east to west
1: exactly because that would have worked as a hedgerow
0: so what are the most essential herbs for somebody to have in their garden
1: i guess the simple simplest answer is what do you want to cook with
0: yay amen to that
1: Uh, yeah so my go-to herbs are rosemary syrian oregano which is the true zatar thyme the Itoe onions And then depending on what else I am wanting to cook with, I have cilantro, dill, and parsley. Those are kind of my... Oh, and of course, basil in season. Right now, the basil said goodbye. I also have three types of oregano. I have the Greek oregano. I have the Syrian oregano, which I just mentioned and the Mexican oregano, and they all have their own wonderful, distinctive flavors. And that's kind of the point of growing multiples within a family. Like you can have multiple types of basils that give you a unique flavor to to experiment with. If you were cooking chicken every day, most people don't want to do that, but you could have a different flavor every day. So you have the Greek oregano, which has that wonderful peppery bite. The Syrian oregano is just a mild, mellow oregano. It's got all of that oregano flavor, but no bite. It, there's almost a sweetness to it. And then Mexican oregano is a, another sweet oregano, but it isn't from the same family. It's a lapilla and the same family as the uh, lemon verbena. But having those three different oreganos, I can choose what amount of oregano I want to come forward in what I'm cooking.
0: Wow. Well, and I know just from my yard, the oregano that I have out front is a a bush that's easily six foot in diameter.
1: (laughs) I let a bed of oregano go. It's been in there for about 20 years. Uh And it's about 12 feet across. Yeah. Exactly. Every once in a while, I have to get the pruners in there because it's encroaching on one of the tree beds.
0: I don't even use pruners. I use the the hedge
1: hacker. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And which actually makes a, a good point about people talk about a ground cover why would you go with something that isn't edible when you can put something like Greek oregano in there and it will easily take over the property?
0: Right, <laughs> exactly. You've mentioned that e toy onion a couple of times. I wanted to spell it for people because it's got a uh, an interesting spelling to it. It's I-apostrophe-I-T-O-I, so I-I-T-O-I onions. And did a search for them, spadefootnursery.com came up with a whole article page on them and You know, I started growing them probably 20 years ago, and they they grow wild in my yard now.
1: Uh Uh-huh, yes. Uh, the history of them is wonderful. They're in Arizona. They're kind of considered a native onion. The Tohono Odom have been growing them for centuries. Uh-huh. They were introduced, I believe, by the Spanish four hundred years ago, and so they're they're you could say they're naturalized. It's kind of like the episode herb is naturalized mm-hmm. up from Central and Mexico. But yeah, they're just like I said. I they're they're now my go-to onion.
0: Right. Yeah. And they're literally get six of them, put them in your yard, and and. A year you'll have right. three hundred eighty-six of them. <laughs> so tell us about your blog.
1: I started the blog around the time of I joined the Valley Permaculture Alliance, and I know you're familiar with that. and And we're active on it. And I started visiting the blog to learn. Mm-hmm. I mean the, uh, the the Valley Permaculture blog to learn, and that's actually how I started getting into writing and lecturing because I after having experimented. Experimented for, uh, at that point, it was probably 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. I had some answers and I saw people's questions and I didn't jump in right away, but I saw people's questions going unanswered, so I started answering. And then I had people at the farmer's market saying, Where can I get information? Where can I ask you a question? And I decided to start writing the blog. And then eventually I figured out how to post a picture. That made it a <laughs> whole lot more interesting. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, so cool. it's been. Going on for a long time.
0: I didn't realize that the Valley Permaculture Alliance forum kind of pushed you into that. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I held back because I'm not I'm not really much of an extrovert. The lecturing that I got into, has has made me very happy to answer questions and offer advice, but I'm hesitant to jump into something that I'm not no know- i I don't know they don't know me that type of thing, right. but i just I felt bad for the people who were asking questions and they weren't getting answers, yeah, and so I decided to jump in and stuck my toes in, didn't get burned
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then you dove in
1: and I dove in
0: nice. Nice. So I'm going to shift on you. And as a returning guest, do you have a vivid childhood or memory from your past lives about food?
1: Oh, yes. My mother is was of Polish descent. My dad was of Irish English descent. We grew up with wonderful Polish food and Irish beef stew. Sunday meals were the big meal of the of the week mm-hmm. and in my family we weren't poor we weren't poverty stricken but we were poor and so that was the biggest meal of the day. My mother grew up on a farm for several years back in the thirties and they couldn't keep the farm. It was one of those sad things. But during that time she had a lot of experiences. And I listened, I kind of grew up listening to her stories about being on the farm. And my grandmother, a most wonderful pr- woman I've ever known, had her little garden patch in the back. My dad grew tomatoes. Mm. So I grew up with an idea that I wanted to be a farmer. And I consider myself a farmer. I'm just not doing it on 60 acres.
0: Right. Wow. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you for that. And a new piece of advice for our listeners?
1: I think that you need to pay attention to the sun orientation. I know we've talked about Mm -hmm. that a little bit, but so many people think, and it gets, of course, back to the whole thing about soil surface. So I would say pay attention to the temperature of the soil, not the temperature of the air. Yeah. If you plant something, put mulch down. If you don't have mulch, Put a whole bunch of plants around it.
0: Yeah. Or do both.
1: Or do both. Right. Awesome. Right.
0: Well, thank you for joining us on the show once again, Catherine.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Greg.
0: Right back at you. How can our listeners find you?
1: I have a website, herbs2u.net. H-E-R-B as in boy, S, the number two, the letter U, dot net.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you once again for being on the show with us today, Catherine. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash favorite herb.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help
0: you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org
1: or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.